Hello, everybody. I am beyond thrilled to be able to say welcome to season two of Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. I have been looking forward to doing this since last summer. Me too. Whenever Miriam and I would have our late night vent sessions or our early morning texting rants, all I could think was, I can't wait until we are back together for the podcast. And here we are. And what makes it even more fun is that we have an absolutely incredible guest, Kristen Thies Alvarez. We actually had a little mini event session right before we started recording, which was super fun. Kristen is the Assistant Dean for Admissions and Financial Aid for Berkeley Law School. And I am especially excited for today's topic. What was that? We will be recapping this past admission cycle, which was an absolutely wild ride. This is our chance to analyze and theorize about how this cycle came to be. Welcome, Kristen. Please introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Hi, everybody. I am incredibly excited to be here. Uh, I first came across your podcast last year. Love the jingle, love the uh, rendering, genius idea. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been in law admissions always at UC Berkeley. And since 2007, I am the Assistant Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. Um, I am a NorCal person uh, through and through. I attended UC Berkeley as an undergrad and then went to Stanford Law School. Um, uh, fun fact, I still live next to my mother, um, although we have we have in fact moved. Um, <laughs> but um, I do not know what that was, just for the record. I'll state that completely upfront. Yeah, maybe that's a good like starting fact is none of us know what that was. Nobody, nobody can figure out what just happened. Exactly. We're still going to try, but we're, I'm not sure we're going to reach any conclusions. All right, let's get to it. Okay, so in keeping with our season one practice of starting with a game, we thought it would be fun to start our recap with two top 10 lists. First, we're going to do the top 10 worst things about the cycle for us as admissions officers and also as human beings. And then we'll do the top 10 best things about this past year. All right, I'm going to kick these, these off. So starting with the worst things about this year, because it's more fun to end with the best. All right, number 10. So this sounds like a small thing, but for me, it was huge. I really missed my favorite local coffee shop in New Haven. It's literally one of my favorite places in the world. It has such a good vibe, amazing avocado toast. I know I sound super bougie, but it really does have great avocado toast, really good skim lattes and cappuccinos. And I used to go and hang out and read files. And it's so much more fun to do it there than sitting in my house with my children all over me. All right. Number nine, I miss the students. I miss the students at Harvard. And I think I took for granted that I would just run into our current students waiting in line in the cafeteria and walking through campus. And uh, I just really missed their daily presence in my life. All right. So number eight, first I have to say, Miriam, avocado toast. Are you sure you're not my people? Um, just, just saying. Um, I do have um, a little NorCal in me, maybe. Got it. Got it. Um, so believe it or not, I'm actually going to say one of the worst things for me was not getting dressed to go to work. So I'm a little bit of an oddity in the Berkeley scene. And Hot I, take. Yeah. I actually really like dressing up. Um, and it might be because I'm a first generation student, but there's something for me about kind of donning professional tire and real shoes that makes me feel really ready to take on the day. And while leggings and LL Bean slippers are great, I did spend most of file reading season looking like I lived on Walden Pond. Um, <laughs> And it turns out That's for my people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it turns out that for me, you know, to quote Thoreau, living deliberately is actually wearing nude heels. So for me, this is number seven. I really missed traveling. I wasn't sure if I would because I have three little kids and the logistics are disastrous. 
And frankly, it's just really hard to deal with work when you're on the road. But I really miss going to hotels and drinking wine at the bar, having a glass of wine away from my family and having an excuse to be alone. It was really, really, really nice when I look back into the past and see those trips. I'll just piggyback on that for number six um, and say I really missed racking up all of my JetBlue points. Not that I had any JetBlue points to use in the year 2020. (laughs) Know where to go. Um, (laughs) So for number five, I'm going to sort of circle back. Well, maybe this relates to both of the previous two points and say I actually really missed... um, being alone. So I, you know, I lived with my with my husband. We have three sons, 23, 20, and 16. But we also had four dogs, two parakeets, and a crested gecko. And literally what? everywhere I go, there's someone like on top of me that <laughs> needs something from me, um, mostly the dogs. So I just, yeah, I really miss being alone. Um, I never thought that our work can be quite lonely at times. But um, man, what I wouldn't give for uninterrupted quiet time. In a hotel room. <laughs> With clean sheets. With clean sheets, exactly. All right, so I'm going to com- I'm gonna contradict myself when we get to the best, but I actually kind of miss my commute. I can't believe I'm saying that, like, oh, I-95, I miss you so much. But there was something really nice about leaving the office and having a break, just being able to listen to podcasts. I have, like, all, all my favorite podcasts. I'm so behind on all of them. And just having, like, that mental separation between work and home. When you work in your attic, it just feels like you're working all the time. And that commute time was so nice in these weird ways I didn't anticipate. That brings us to number three. So Top this three, is uh, Christy, no pressure. This is my hardest thing about the year. So the hardest thing for me, at least admissions work wise, was just how hard my team pushed to get everything done. We were completely reinventing our jobs when it came to recruitment season, yield season, and we read more files than ever. And as a manager and a team leader, it, it can be really hard to see your team just push so hard um, because they care about their work, but they're also exhausted. So for number two, for me, one of the absolute worst was not feeling connected specifically to last year's entering class. So to the one else that just finished their first year. Yeah, that's Because sucked. in admissions, right, we invest so much in candidates and applicants and admitted students all through the course of the cycle and the process. And then there's this payoff. There's this moment at orientation when they're all there. They're real people and they're they're interesting and they're eclectic and they're excited and they're nervous and they're freaking out. Um, and mostly you don't have a ton of contact with them after that, but they do pop in and you do see them in the hall and you kind of get to see their trajectory and their growth as they settle in and find each other. And it just felt like a whole year of like missed connections. Um, and I, uh, I didn't realize because our work is so cyclical, how much my um, sort of emotional investment was really tied to this payoff coming at the end, when I felt like, aha, I had done it. And it just wasn't the same when they weren't literally in the building. Yeah, that moment at orientation, when you look out at the room, and it's filled with people, and you've read all their files, and you know them all a little bit is such a great moment. For me, my number one toughest thing was just the sheer volume. Uh, and I don't think I could have done it if if this was my first year. I mean, I'm only in year three of this. It was overwhelming. It was literally from the moment I woke up until the moment I fell asleep, often while reading files. It just felt 
almost impossible. And there were moments when I was like, can we do this? Like, can we make it through this volume of applications and do it well? You know, it's like we want to read and we do read every file so carefully and you want to give it so much attention because you know how much effort people put into it. All right, let's transition right into the best things about this year, because I think there are there were some great things and I couldn't do this job if I wasn't an eternal optimist. And I'm always trying to find the silver linings. So Number 10, and Kristen, I'm sorry about this, but I never want to wear pants with buttons again. In fact, I'm not sure I fit into any of my pants with buttons, so I don't know what I'm going to do when I have to go back to the office in August. I've worn leggings and sweatpants uh, every single day, and I love it. All right, number nine. I discovered that I love working from home. I had never liked it before this year, and I'm super excited to be back on campus, but it is pretty awesome getting to throw in a load of laundry between meetings. So number eight, and it's funny that we all kind of landed on a similar theme. I'm going to bring together the leggings and work from home themes and say that for me, um, especially kind of for my mental health through what was a very difficult year, uh, the ease of exercising and transitioning sort of between things was really helpful. So I could go from a Zoom meeting to like a quick 20 minute ride on the bike back into another meeting, and then I could end the day file reading, walking on our treadmill. So, you know, carving out the clothes changing and the driving time between those kinds of events in the past um, has been really, really helpful. And it's probably the only reason anybody got application decisions this year is that I I managed to to, uh, find lots of opportunities to exercise. All right. So number seven, I feel like in admissions and in many jobs, you kind of always do the thing you did the year before. You just tweak around the edges. And there was no tweaking around the edges this year. Everything, as Christy said before, was rebuilding from ground up. And that kind of forced creativity was actually kind of awesome. We had to really completely rethink how we do recruiting, completely rethink how we engage with admitted students. And I think some of the things we came up with kind of sucked, actually, but some of them were awesome. And I want to keep doing them. I think that that was, to me, one of the absolute best things about this year was really being forced to just start from scratch and try new things. And I loved it. So number six, uh, on a related note, I really liked how many people we reached with virtual recruitment. When you didn't have to think about how many people could fit in a room or what's your budget to fly places. So I had this moment where a student group at Michigan State reached out to ask for a session and Instead of having to think about, you know, who's going to go to East Lansing and what are the hotels like and how many flights do we have to do? Uh, and we just built a Zoom link and it was amazing. For number five, I actually hit upon something similar, and that was just the geographic diversity of the people that we could reach. Um, so I saw so many people from places we've never been, we never would go. That includes international students, um, you know, people who were up in the middle of the night from India, but willing to come to our event because it meant that they could learn about Berkeley Law, people who never would have visited or could have visited the campus in person, who could sit in on a live mock con law class with Dean Chemerinsky or come to my office hours to get their question answered. Um, I do think it's kind of blown up a lot of things, like what is pre-law advising? And there's a bunch of sort of interesting questions going on right now. Um, But just the geographic diversity has really been transformative. Um, And I I think that it's here to stay in the sense that I think that uh, virtual events are here to stay. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All right, number four, and here's my contradiction. So in some ways, not commuting was such a liberation and so amazing. I actually calculated it. So my commute is 40 minutes each way. So that's 400 minutes each week that I saved. And that is a lot of files. I don't know that I could have gone through this volume of files. Like I actually, during file reading season, think of my life like 
Is this worth the number of files that it would cost me to read? And 400 minutes? I don't know. Like over the course of those weeks, that's so many files that I was reading when I would have been commuting. So I think this year, especially saving that time just felt so lucky that I had all of that. That's a whole day of file reading a week that I added into my life. How sad, but also how awesome. I think it's awesome. Thank you, Christy, for validating me. I really appreciate (laughs) it. All right. Number three, top three. Um, Okay. I'm going to go cheesy. I really love that we put together this podcast, Miriam. I think the pandemic was what forced us to rethink. I mean, maybe we would have come to this one day anyway, but it was like, okay, we got to think creative, try something new. We took, took a flyer on this and I think it really worked. And I really loved that we got to connect with prospective students who listen to this podcast and then now are, then they were applicants and then they were admitted students. Now they're going to be our incoming one else. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I feel the same way. Number two, and maybe this seems unlikely, but I've actually had more time to think. So most of that thinking has been consumed by thinking about work. And I definitely gripe about the lack of clear delineation between work and life. But walking along like the drizzly coast with two dogs inevitably leads to reflection. And there's actually more than one applicant that I thought I was going to deny, but who I couldn't get out of my head. And I ended up admitting. So I guess they can probably think my super high energy dogs. But the reality is those sort of spaces where it's somewhat quiet, and I could actually think about work, um, as opposed to closing my computer, walking out and being like, I'm done thinking about work has had some real benefits, both for me and I think for um, for candidates. It's kind of profound. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'm just picturing you on a cliff with a dog in the drizzle. So this is going to be super cheesy, but this year really made me appreciate my team, um, who are all spectacular and incredible. And also just the larger admissions community. I think this year we were more intentional um, at connecting with each other. We had sort of regular calls where we just were like, what was that? You know, what's going on? And <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what is this? Do you, do you see that this is crazy too? And I think that there's something about being virtual that forces you to, to be more intentional about outreach to people. And I think we all were. And so this just felt like a year of increased connectivity, which is a little odd to say in a year that was virtual. But because we're all so far apart, um, the only way for us to connect is virtually. And so since so much of that was happening, we really did. So it really made me appreciate you as members of the larger admissions community, as well as so many of our colleagues, and then my internal colleagues as well. All right. Let's dive right into our main topic for today's episode. What the heck was that? (laughs) Let's start by talking about application volume. So here's some basic facts, sort of a snapshot as of mid-May. LSAC, the Law School Admission Council, reports that out of 200 law schools, 192 reported an increase in applications. Applications are up overall by 31.5% compared to last year and 27.5% compared to two years ago. And not only were applications up significantly, the number of applicants were up too by almost 20% from the prior year and 15% or more from two years ago. So I wanted to start by asking you both a few initial questions. So first, did you experience any significant increases in application volume? And if so, when did you first notice that something was different this year? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so I'd actually, I've been doing this long enough that I've lived through the 2010 sort of like post-recession increase where we saw a whole number of people, many of whom were, you know, 
career changers, thinking about going back to grad school. So this year, it felt somewhat similar. Um, and I could tell right away that we were headed in that direction, based on the number of apps that came right at the start of the cycle, and also on the quality of the applications. So we spent a fair amount of time looking closely at national numbers to try and understand what was going on. But I've got to be honest, like at some point, up, very up, up everywhere, up in every category, like doesn't actually tell you much. So it was really a challenge to stay kind of like focused and optimistic and also to be able to stay flexible so that you could change and respond. Every week felt a little bit different. Every month felt a little bit different. But over and over again, everything was just up. Our application was just up, like by a very, very significant percentage this year. And I noticed it immediately. So our application opened on October 1st. And just day one, we had an enormous increase in applications compared to day one last year. But it was really hard because we had a changed variable. So this year, compared to last year, we had actually posted our application. I forget for how long. I don't know if it was for a few weeks or for a month ahead of time so people could start to work on it. And last year, we had just opened it the same day that we posted it. And so internally, we were thinking, well, maybe it's just that people had time to work on it. Is that what's driving this initial change? And so we were trying to figure out if that's what was going on right at the beginning, but it quickly became clear that wasn't what was going on. It was hot and heavy throughout the entire cycle. It just never let up. So that was our experience as well at Harvard. We were just slammed right out of the gate and I kept waiting for it to slow and I kept thinking it was just something odd about the start of this cycle and it just never stopped. Yeah, it just never stopped. So here's a question for both of you. Did you change anything about your process because of the increase in the applications? And separately, in hindsight, do you wish that you had changed anything? The interesting for me part of that question is, what do I wish I'd changed? And man, there are a lot of things. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to make it harder for people to apply. Like we're not, you know, certainly mid-cycle, you don't want to up the bar. That's not the game we're playing because it isn't a game, right? It's people who put together a lot of effort and time to put their best applications in front of you. And you want to take that really seriously and honor it. So one of the things that we did, and I think this was unpopular, but I think the right thing to do is that we each read more files. But we also read more slowly. And I know that that sounds sort of like um, non-intuitive, but one of the things that we noticed was that the quality was staying consistently high, whereas normally it starts to fall off. And right, because people who are very together and they took the LSAT a long time ago and they're raring to go are often very strong candidates and they apply very early. And then some people are just throwing in apps towards the end. Um, but that wasn't true this year. So I started to get pretty nervous pretty early about ensuring that we had enough space for the really strong candidates who were going to show up in January or February. And we started to pump the brakes a little bit. Um, rolling admissions, which is something that we use, and I know not everyone does, it made this year survivable for us. Um, and it meant that everybody got a decision. But I've never before kind of wished that we didn't have rolling admissions and could instead see the whole pool and then make decisions. Yeah, this year did make me think about why do we do rolling admissions? Is this a good system at all? Like, after all? I think no, but that might be a topic for another <laughs> but time. maybe that's a topic for another podcast. Part yeah. two. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't change anything this year um, because by the time I realized that this volume increase wasn't going away, we had already reviewed hundreds and hundreds of files and sent them off for faculty review. And so at that point, you can't change the bar because it's not it's just not fair. Then you've sent some people with, you know, setting the bar in one place. You can't then raise the bar and change it mid-cycle. I think Kristen sort of referred to that. 
Can I just underscore something you said about process, uh, about how you don't change the process once the cycle has begun? So I sort of referenced this in my comments, but we have a multi-read system. So each file is read by multiple readers. I I probably wouldn't have gone back and changed that even if I had known the volume was as high. But hypothetically, that's one thing I could have done if I had had a crystal ball is eliminate second or third reads. Um, but once you've done that, once you have a month of doing a multi-reader system, you can't change that system midway through. Yeah, I think people don't quite think about how much our job is to make sure that this is an equitable process. Exactly. And consistent. Um, yeah, it's it's critical to what we do. I always tell people that, you know, we have to have process transparency and consistency. Um and if we don't, you know, everything starts to fall off really quickly and it just kind of spins off center. Yeah, for me, the really tricky part was trying to distinguish between an actual increase. And it was clear there was an increase. It just wasn't clear how big it was and time shifting. So was it that because of COVID, people were just or for whatever reason, people were just applying earlier and the actual total end volume was going to be somewhat similar to prior years? Or was this primarily a massive volume increase. I'm wondering whether you've noticed sort of historical changes in when applicants have been applying over the course of your time in admissions. Yeah, I definitely have. I mean, there's been a shift towards more and more applications coming in earlier in the cycle. And and for better or worse, I think where it has gotten out is specifically in a rolling admission system, it can be advantageous to apply earlier. I think the subtleties of that often get missed um, by people, right? They're like they said early, right? Um, and and that's it's not quite that cut and dry. But at the same time, um, I think that, you know, it's one of the things an applicant can control when they apply, right? You can't go back and change your undergraduate record. There's some things you can't change, but you can change whether you apply on February 1st or September 1st. Um, and so that, that certainly has shifted. One explanation could be the timing and frequency of the LSAT administration. So when it was very clear there were only four a year and it was September or December and that's it, if the school had a February deadline, the app waves were highly predictable. Um, and that's just not the case anymore. So, you know, it's just a, it's just been another change that I think admissions professionals have had to try to navigate and manage. Um, I should also say that the quality of the applications did sort of decline, not entirely precipitously, but significantly towards the end of the cycle. And I haven't seen that to be true as much anymore either. Um, so, you know, nothing like all of your data and years of experience not being helpful, right? I think that's what made this this year so hard is that everything changed simultaneously. There was no model. There was right. no model. And right. and you had planned based on a model and then all the variables simultaneously changed. And because it's hard to know how much of that was connected to the COVID, the pandemic. And so how much of that is portents for the future and how much of this was like a one-off crazy sure. year. And that's what I think makes it so tricky as we're, we're looking forward is how much should we treat this year as like, whoa, unprecedented, unex you know, exceptional. And how much do we need to, to bake right. this into our future model? Are we a chapter in the book Outliers or something right. else? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Any theories? What are your theories as to why we all saw such a large volume increase this year? So I'll throw out one. This is low-hanging fruit. There was an increase in applications per applicant, but it was a relatively small one, less than one additional application on average. But that at least accounts for a tiny bit of the increase in application volume. 
Yeah, I mean, that's there's no question that's part of it. And I think that's been part of a trend over time of people applying to more law schools. Um, and I also think that this year, the increased number of applications could have been driven by two opposing forces. On the one hand, as word trickled out as it did pretty quickly, that the cycle was super competitive. I think that some applicants were like, holy cow, I better get some more applications out there. Let me throw some some applications out to more schools just to be safe. On the other hand, and I think this gets to what I consider to be the elephant in the room or maybe the elephant of this cycle, I think a lot of applicants scored very highly on the LSAT flex. Not everyone. Some people were hurt by the LSAT flex. I think we have to acknowledge that. But there were people who scored much higher than they were anticipating, and that made them competitive for schools that maybe they didn't think they would be competitive for. And that led to some additional applications. Yeah, there definitely was an increase for us in the number of people who are applying with very high scores. Sometimes those were amongst scores that were less high and sometimes they were just high scores. But I was just like, you know, I don't know how sort of skewed my perspective is because I'm only seeing who I'm seeing, right? And I do think people were, if they were applying to one or two extra schools, if they'd gotten a higher score, it was one or two of our schools. Um, That's right. it, It really changed things. Yeah. We were a subset of a subset, right? There's all test takers, And then of those test takers, some become applicants. And then some of those applicants become applicants at each of our individual schools. So we're seeing a very small slice of the entire pie of of people who take the LSAT. Before we start talking about elephants, aka the LSAT flex, which I know everyone wants to hear about that a little bit, any other theories about why application volume has been just insanely high this year? So this is super obvious, but (laughs) COVID-19 <laughs> and the pandemic. Um, I think someone you know, has to say it. Right. I mean, and part <laughs> of this is part of this is sort of shaped by having lived through that kind of post-recession uptick where the number of apps for us was also very similar. And, um, you know, people don't have the jobs that they want or undergrads who are applying don't have the opportunities that they want um, or, you know, things fall through. And definitely people often view graduate school as a safe harbor in times of economic distress or, you know, a loss of a job can prompt you to reevaluate your life and priorities and realize that you it's time to pursue your real dream. I do think that graduate schools in general um, saw increases in applications, medical and business. So it's it's not like it's a law unique phenomenon. And, and that's that's really about COVID. Absolutely. Uh, Miriam and I have discussed one example of this. We both noticed an increase in the number of applicants with a background in the performing arts this year. A huge so you, increase. You, you usually oh, yeah. get some, but a massive increase. And that's That makes sense. That's an industry that was hit really hard by the pandemic. And law school may have seemed like a very reasonable and interesting alternative for a lot of folks in the performing arts. We saw a big bump in the number of college seniors applying too. Yeah. And and that made sense to me too. I mean, the job market was really tough, I think, for entry-level positions. Anecdotally, I spoke to a lot of college seniors who might have wanted to do Peace Corps or a research fellowship abroad, like a Fulbright before starting law school. And that option was effectively off the table. And so I think for a lot of them, it made good sense to just simply apply to law school now. No, that's so true. I have one other one. And again, this is just kind of based on the slightly longer view, um, which is that after the last downturn in apps, a lot of us felt like there was not enough emphasis being placed on really proactively telling the story of why law matters and making the case for why being an attorney or a judge can make a difference in the world. And in fact, you know, we all participate in laws and that's where laws came from. Like there was actually a group of schools that were like, you know, nobody's saying what needs to be said 
said, in terms of like law school is a really good idea in many cases, and it's a powerful, powerful tool for justice. Um, so the exact opposite was true in the last year, which basically every time you turn on the television, it was hours and hours and hours of free advertisement for the importance of the rule of law. That I don't think can be measured, but also shouldn't be underestimated. Does this mean it's time to get back to the elephant of the LSAT flex? Yay. My, I asked my, my son just did, sorry, this is a total segue. He did a big project on um, the life cycle of an elephant. And he's like convinced it's spelled E-L-A-P-H-A-N-T. It's so cute. Elephant? Elephant. So let's get back to the elephant in the room. So I'll say it. Um, I certainly noticed very early on that there were a lot more high LSAT scores among my applicant pool than I'm used to seeing. So question for both of you. Did you notice the same thing? Oh, it felt that way. I'm going to do some data just for context. So here it is. And this is, again, roughly as of mid-May. So the number of people scoring 175 to 180 more than doubled, an increase of 102%. And then in the 170 to 174 range, there is an increase of just over 55%. And then in the 165 to 169 and 160 to 164 ranges, there were increases of just under 30% each. So basically, not only did lots more people take the LSAT this year, many, many more of them got very high scores than they did in the prior year. So to fully understand what that means, I think we need to provide a little bit of background on how those LSAT scores are calculated. Kristen, I'm going to make you give it a go so that uh, so that we, Christy and I don't mess it up. So, I trust you more than I trust us. Give it, I'll give it a shot. So let's start with the basics, right? You take a test and you get a certain number of questions right. That's your raw score. So for each LSAT administration, LSAC, which is the Law School Admissions Council, decides in advance how to convert that raw score into a scale score, which is the LSAT scale of 120 to 180. Um, it's one of the reasons 180 isn't necessarily perfect, FYI. <laughs> the conversions are often different from test to test since tests can be a little bit easier or harder. So you may need to get more questions right to get a 173 on the June test than the October. And for the record, I'm not saying June is harder. I'm just throwing those dates out. Very, yes. Substitute <laughs> any dates that you want. I've, I've heard that theory before. Um, so this is different than a traditional curve where only a set percentage of test takers can get a specific score. And I think almost nobody really understands that. Um, and it's certainly not talked about a lot, but it is important context, especially for the rest of this conversation. I'll add one final piece, which is um, just as important to admissions officers, if not more important. And that is, how does your score actually stack up against other applicant scores? So are you in the 99th percentile, the 95th, the 80th percentile? When we get a score report from LSAC, we get both your LSAT score, so that's the 120 to 180, and we also get your percent rank. But that percent rank is not based on the one LSAT you actually took in June or December or whatever it was, it's based on the prior three years of data. So for this year's cycle, it was based on data from 2017 to 2020. So I just want to summarize what to me are the two most important points and that sort of were the two most important points throughout this cycle in terms of the LSAT flex. So the first one is that this conversion from raw to scaled scores is decided before anyone takes the test. And the percent rank we see on the reports is based on data from prior years. That means that if applicants start to perform differently than usual on the LSAT, those scaled scores sh could shift. So that means that 120 to 180 scores, those could start to shift. But those percentage ranks are not going to reflect those changes immediately. 
So there are a lot of theories floating around for why those scaled LSAT scores increased this year, i.e. why did we have more people scoring in the 175 to 180 range than in a prior year? What do you guys think? Why did that start to happen? And I will just note, that's a trend. It's not just this year. We noticed it more this year, but that has been a trend over time. So the Bluntus theory revolves around test taker population, and I don't subscribe to this theory personally, but I will offer it up for the point of for the sake of completeness and discussion. So there are some people that speculate that maybe this year's test takers were simply better at the LSAT than those who took the test in prior years, and that would naturally lead to higher scores. What do yeah, you think I, about that theory, Kristen? I mean, I I too don't subscribe to that. I think the longer you do this, the more you realize that like it's complicated. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but I do think there's like a related set of theories that has like more grounded in what actually happened in 2020 that makes a little bit more sense to me, which is, you know, assuming a similar population of test takers, but hypothesizing that this year's group was better prepared, right? So they had more time to prepare because they were laid off from their job. Um, and they had more awareness and better access to test prep through more low and no cost test prep options that have begun to crop up both from the Law School Admissions Council and elsewhere. So if they had more time to prepare and access to better test prep or access to any test prep, whereas they didn't have it before because they didn't have access to a free option, then scores, one might assume, would naturally begin to creep up. Right. And I think that a third set of theories revolves around changes to the test itself. And there were simultaneously, and this was largely because of COVID, a lot of changes to the test. So we went from an in-person test at a testing center with five sections to a test that was remote proctored at home with three sections. So that was a lot of changes that happened all at once. And you can imagine that some combination of those changes might have been enough to change the way people were scoring on the test. The reality is that none of us and no one really knows what combination of factors led to the increase in scores this year. It's probably a whole stew of a bunch of different things. And But what we do know is there was, in fact, a significant increase in those top scores. So for the listeners who have not yet taken the LSAT or who plan to retake it in 2021-2022, what is coming up with the LSAT moving forward? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And, you know, as with everything now, it's what we know for the next six months or year, right? Um, And (laughs) then who knows after that? (laughs) Yeah, it's there. Um, So the LSAT is going to continue to be online with its sort of live remote proctored version um, all of this year through June 2022. So if you're going to take the LSAT um, or retake the LSAT, you're going to be doing it in, a, in an online setting. However, beginning in August, and this is important, and, and, and LSAC sent out notice of this a while ago, but in case anyone missed it, beginning in August, the test will no longer be three sections, the flex, which was three sections, right? It's going to go to four sections. Um, the fourth section is an unscored section, so it could be logical reasoning or analytical reasoning or reading comprehension. But of course, the test taker won't know which section is what's typically referred to as the experimental section. Um, and, and the reason, which may be quite obvious, is right in, 
in LSAC world or in psych- psychometrician world, right? Tests are called forms and individual questions are called item types. And item types have to be tested. LSC has been operating without an experimental section. And if you imagine the world of item types as a bank, right, they're running out of item types and they need to start testing more of them. So um, that means all of the future test takers will, will be the ones trying them out. Um, but it, it changes the length of the test, which could change things. And the one thing that a four-section test comes with is a 10-minute break. So the flex was a three-section test with no break. The four-section test will have one 10-minute break in it. So that's another difference. So I'm sure, oh, maybe you're not wondering, but we're all wondering as admissions officers, how are we going to manage our application now that we're going to have these three variations on the LSAT out there? The original in-person five-section test, which I'm sure over time will diminish in terms of the frequency with which we see it. Um, and the remote three-section test, the one that we had from for basically a year, June 2020 to June 2021. And then the one that is about to start in August, this remote four-section test that will be used uh, starting this summer. I'll speak for the the HLS admissions team. We're not planning on changing anything about our review process, depending on the format of the LSAT. So in other words, we're not going to have separate buckets or processes for applicants to apply with each of these variations of the LSAT. We are going to keep the context of each test taker's circumstances in mind. But for us, that's nothing new. We've always done that. Yeah, with, I agree exactly with what Christy said, but I'll just say one more thing. And that's what this year has really reinforced for me is that the LSAT is just one component of the application. And it's made me even more aware of the importance of focusing on the, the many ways we have to assess the applicant's academic ability. So the LSAT is an, is an important component of assessing that factor, but looking really carefully at the entire undergraduate transcript. Uh, looking at any graduate transcripts, reading the letters of recommendation, looking at the way the person writes and thinks and talks in the application itself. Yeah, same same exact situation. We are not changing anything. Uh, we have always and will continue to take context, context into consideration, but no plans to do anything differently. Exactly. All right, so let's change topics a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about the consequences of the large increase in applications we all saw this year. So how, if at all, did it affect your decision-making and the cycle overall? Well, one thing I know... I feel like we all need to be a big sigh. (laughs) Exactly. I need that LSAT 10-minute break. Um, So (laughs) one thing I noticed in reading files is that because so many people had great numbers, um, that it really, I felt sort of liberated from consideration of them. And, and, and I feel probably in the world of law schools, maybe less constrained than some others do anyway. Um, but I felt even more liberated. But the irony is that I think I got choosier, right? Like I, I suddenly was like, okay, well, you've all, I mean, I sometimes describe it as a three-part test. Like, can you do the work? What else will you contribute? Are you a good fit for our school? And so many more people got over the first hurdle, like with such ease um, that the sort of emphasis placed on those secondary questions was really heightened for us. And there were people who just didn't bring it home, who I think were perfectly qualified and would will be wonderful law students somewhere. But I had to say no to them. I have a speculative uh, consequence. In other words, I suspect it's true, but it's based on anic data versus like big global data you can find on the internet. That's my favorite kind of data. <laughs> I love anic data. It's so fun. <laughs> All right. So see, see if you think this is true. So anecdotally, speaking from Speaking with a lot of my admitted students at HLS, it seems as though there was less cross-admitting than usual. So cross-admitting is when applicants 
one school admits are also admitted to a bunch of other schools. Um, and I mean, I have students in my incoming class at HLS who were only admitted to Harvard. They weren't, they were waitlisted or rejected everywhere Whoa. else. And I think that's because school, just, just like Kristen was saying, schools were making really nuanced decisions based on whether applicants were a great fit for their specific school. And we had the luxury of doing that with more applications and so many excellent applications this year. Does your anecdata line up, Kristen? I, it absolutely does. And um, my, my yield would suggest the same. <laughs> yes, I agree with that completely. It felt like it was a little more sporadic where people got in. Usually when we admit people, they don't. it's not always or usually a clean sweep of where, the, where they get in elsewhere, but usually they get into most places they apply. And it felt this year like it was a little more hit or miss. And I think it's because, and I think this is maybe in some ways, I don't know that applicants would agree, but I think it's a good thing when schools are saying, you seem fantastic, but maybe not a great fit for our programmatic offerings or for our culture or for you know, something about our community. And I think this year we did because there were so many people who were applying with just tremendous academic records, able to make those fine distinctions. Um, And we certainly, I'd certainly felt this year too. Like it felt like exactly like you said, Kristen, I always say there's two big questions we're trying to ask. Number one is, can you do the work? Do you have the academic abilities to be successful? And number two is what will you contribute? And so many people got number one that you really focus your attention on number two. And everyone, every school, I think, looks at number two a little bit differently. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about anecdata, which was awesome. I love that word, Christy. I'm going to keep it. Uh, I also found that there were some um, unexpected challenges, both for applicants and for schools. And I think for the applicants, and this is, again, stating the total obvious, I think there were definitely applicants who were not admitted to places that felt safe and probably would have been safe, to be totally honest, in a prior year. Uh, And that must have been exceptionally hard, especially if they were only applying to those schools and they didn't have sort of safeties lined up. I'm sure this will make no one feel better, but I could not believe who we released this year. I couldn't believe yes. who yep. we said no yep. to this year. Yes. Yep. I felt the same way. Like there were people who were unbelievable who are sitting on my wait list to in any other year we would have admitted like without even blinking. Oh, I had a group of people and my team was like, you cannot admit more people. And I was like, I've already cut it from this number to this number. Look at these people. What am I supposed to do with them? They're miraculous. You're telling me I can't admit them. It was so challenging. Yeah. I was planning to do some waitlist admitting and I ended up at least to date, I haven't done it. And I was so upset because I had my eye on people on the wait list that I was so excited about, like lots of people. And it was going to be like so hard to pick among them. And it's devastating because, I mean, they're all going to, I'm sure, fabulous places and are going to be great. It's our loss, not theirs. But it's it's just devastating to me when I'm like, but what about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? I was like so excited to have the chance to admit them. And it just, it it was such a crazy year. It just didn't happen. Yeah, it does underscore the uh, pitfalls and perils of relying on uh, the advice that comes from Reddit or some of those other sources where people are like, oh, you'll be fine, you know, or they're all sort of shocked that you didn't get in. It's, yeah, there's there's a whole file, people, not a uh, not a signature line. That's right. The other one that's really out there in the news right now is just yield. Yes. <laughs> As, you know, what were the challenges for applicants in schools? Um, that's another elephant in the room. <laughs> exactly. And, and and we do not have to rely on anic data for that one. Right? Um, so most schools these days can probably calculate their, their yield. And a lot of us are going, holy, you know what, um, 
well, this is absolutely outside of any model that was even contemplated. And obviously, you know, we are really deliberate and careful about sort of tailoring the number of offers to make based on historical data, underscoring and understanding yield and yield across categories and groups of people. And then everything just gets thrown out in a year like 2021, um, which can throw off scholarship budgets and class sizes and other complications. And, and we're seeing that now kind of crop up in, you know, in, in the in the news and in the discussions, which is there's a number of schools that have been pretty upfront about the fact that their class came in a lot larger than anticipated. And and then there's a whole secondary group of people who are speculating on what the, the potential consequences of that might be in all kinds of areas, including career outcomes. Completely anecdotally, I'll say that like the schools that admitted fewer, but like five-ish percent fewer, like a lot of them ended up in kind of trouble. And the schools that went super conservative and it was more like 20% fewer did better. Um, and by better, I just mean better in terms of coming in closer to their targets, right? I'm sure we all have wonderful classes. Um, and that's just hard to anticipate and manage. And 20%-ish is risky, real it's risky. very risky, yes. It was very risky, yeah. yes. There were times I couldn't, I don't want it to sound too dramatic, but like I would wake up in a sweat at five Me in the too. morning. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, oh my I, God. I'm yes. not going to have enough people. Yes. I cannot tell you the number of times like I would like call Craig and be like, we need to talk about the number again. And he's like, what are we going to say? We've talked about this a dozen times. And I'm like, we need, I need you. We need to run this again. Like I need, we need to walk through this again. I'm like feeling panicked. I was feeling low grade panicked for two months leading into May 1 just constant low-grade panic. Because you could feel that something was up, like we could feel it, but you didn't know which way it was going to Which cut. way was it going to break? Yeah. Yep, which yeah. way was it going to break? That's right. Yeah. Did you guys also find that deposits came in really early this year? People were yeah. making decisions oh, yeah. early? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, again, it was time shifting. And you're like, is this time shifting or is something different? Oh, we have a, you know, one of my favorite uh, sort of interactive real time spreadsheets and um, is is one that shows me yield like year over year comparatively and you can yeah. hover on the graphs. And so as my anxiety got increased, I was like spending more time on it. And um, yeah, I mean, watching at, at early dates, like in March and April, it compared to last year be 20% over and then 30% over and then 40% over. And then I think at one point it was 92% over. Yes. It, it felt like it was so many more people committing so much earlier and almost nobody withdrawing. And I kept on thinking, oh, it's just early. It's just, you know, they can't visit anyways. That's what we kept telling ourselves. Well, they can't visit anyways. So what would they be waiting for? But it was more than that. It was something was different. This year was just different. Maybe it's Christie's uh, anecdata about lack of cross-admitting. I, I, yeah. I think that's what it was. I really do. Once they heard from other places and they weren't getting into other places that were serious contenders, they were like, well, what? why wouldn't I commit? Yep. All right. As fun as this has been, enough looking backwards. Time oh, to look forward to the been amazing. So fun. <laughs> so I want to look backward more. So fun. I still don't um, know what it was. <laughs> what was that? We don't know. <laughs> it was an elephant. <laughs> That's right. That's all we can say. All right, looking forward to the class of 2025. Any predictions or advice for this year's applicants? Oh, I mean, I I predict it's going to be similarly challenging. Um I mean, I I could be wrong, and if this year has taught me anything, it's that I'm I'm wrong sometimes. Um uh, but I do think that there's a number of people who are deciding 
maybe they didn't get the outcome that they wanted and so they're going to reapply um, or they need to apply differently to a different set of schools. They want to retake the LSAT, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it feels like there's still kind of this pent up demand a little bit in the marketplace and a bunch of people kind of waiting in the wings, um, getting ready to apply to law school. Um, I so I mean I don't I, I maybe don't think it'll be as intense as this year, but I do think applications will still be up. I don't think there's going to be a, a sort of move back to you know oh it's 2019 now. So I am not in the prediction game ever again in my life because this, that's what this past year has taught me. But if I was, I would completely agree with Kristen. Super competitive, but if I had to guess, not quite as competitive as this year. But I'm going to give two pieces of advice that I think this year has have really underscored for me. So one thing that I would really suggest is the only thing you can control in all of this craziness is your own application. Strong applicants really continue to stand out this year. Don't focus on what anyone else is doing. Don't focus on, you know, applicant volume or, you know, LSAT scores. Focus on yourself. What's your narrative? What do you want us to know about you? How does each component of your application add to that story? And that's what you can control and what you should focus on. The second thing that this year really underscored, and I think you've heard it from all of us, is that numbers are not the be-all and the end-all of an application. Yes, of course they matter. No one's going to tell you that they don't, but they only matter as an indicia of your ability to succeed in law school. There are other such indicia in your application that matter just as much, and they don't represent who you are as a person, and they only represent a very small part of who you are as an applicant. If you have great numbers, don't assume you're all set, and if your numbers aren't perfect, also, don't assume that you're toast. You're really, really, really not. I think the numbers, especially in a very competitive cycle, weirdly matter less than they do in a less competitive cycle. Because we all have so many great numbers to choose from that we're looking for something beyond that. And for those reapplicants from this cycle or people who are going to be one else at schools and are just thinking about what just happened, just know that it was it was a fierce cycle and sometimes the ball bounced your way and sometimes it bounced another way. And none of us feel that that's a reflection of your the quality of your application or how incredible a lawyer you will be. And um, even those who weren't accepted to our schools, we really do wish you well. We're pulling for you. Kristen, thanks for joining us. It's been it's a been great, fun. it's been a great first episode and so much fun chatting. Any any final parting advice for our listeners? No, I mean I feel like what you and Miriam just said. I hope people will like I don't know rewind and replay that advice. Um, none of us are in it just to wear our school's hats and try to get you know beat each other out. I hope you see the collaboration that's quite natural and the relationship and community. But we, we want people to go to law school because that's the right fit for them. And we want them to pick the right school for them. It may not be our schools and we want them to thrive at that school. We want them to go on and be amazing advocates, right? That's why we do this work. Um, and so I, I just think, you know, what, what you said about there being lots of potential uh, ways to demonstrate your outstanding and incredible um, ability to succeed at school in law school is is critical. Um, and and then don't take it too personally if you don't get it right. It doesn't mean you're not destined for, for law school or for lawyering. It, it just means that either it wasn't a great fit for our school or that as we've learned this year, it was a really, really tough year. So stay optimistic, stay focused. If this is your dream, um, we are in fact all pulling for you. And if you're thinking, what was that? We are too. <laughs> 
Exactly. Hopefully by next year, we will all know what this was and we won't have another what was that year. I want to say the biggest, hugest thank you to Kristen, who I have so much respect and admiration for. Um, in our profession, she's one of the absolute best. So thank you so much for joining us. It has been truly an honor and a pleasure. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. If you have a question you'd like us to answer or... New for this year, a personal statement or resume you'd like me and Christy to review. You can submit those on our brand new website. Please check it out. And we can't wait to hear from you. This podcast is produced by Ryan McAvoy from the Yale Broadcast Studio.